0: I'm a fashion model, designer, and businesswoman. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk.
2: morning. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to the final Money Talk of the week on Friday, the 15th of July. This is Peter Lewis, and I have the latest business and finance news for you as Asian markets open this morning. New data released yesterday showed U.S. producer prices, which is the price manufacturers pay for their raw materials, rose 11.3% in June as inflation continued to soar. This was higher than the 10.9% annual gain seen in May and above economists' expectations. It was also the second highest reading on record after the 11.6% increase in March. Later this morning, China's National Bureau of Statistics reports second quarter GDP figures, with several economists now forecasting that the mainland economy contracted quarter on quarter for the first time since the pandemic started in 2020. Year-on-year growth is expected to slow to 1.2% from 4.8% in the first quarter. Yesterday, Premier Li Keqiang said the government will support the economy while preventing inflation. He was quoted by CCTV as saying that the mainland economy was hit hard in the second quarter by factors that exceeded expectations, but it steadied and recovered in June. The Philippines Central Bank has become the latest to surprise markets with a bigger than expected rate hike to call inflation. The Central Bank raised its key interest rate by 75 basis points to three and a quarter percent. Governor Philippe Medalla said the increase was warranted due to signs of sustained and broadening price pressures. And Singapore's Central Bank also tightened its monetary policy on Thursday in a surprise off cycle move. The Monetary Authority of Singapore said it would recenter the midpoint of the exchange rate policy band, known as the nominal effective exchange rate. The tightening was the MAS's fourth in the past nine months. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Martin Henneker at St. James's Place Wealth Management with a view from India. It's Toby Lawson of Societe Generale India. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please text 6393 Email Money Talk at rthk.hk. Post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3.
3: Money Talk on
0: RTHK Radio
2: 3. On Wall Street overnight, US stocks came under pressure as investors priced in larger US interest rate hikes and following disappointing bank earnings. But the main indices closed well off their lows. The S&P 500 recovered from losses of over 2% to close a third of a percent lower at 3,790, The Dow was down over 600 points at one stage, but rebounded to end the session 143 points or half a percent lower at 30,630. The Nasdaq Composite Index was the best performing of the three major indices, ending the day almost unchanged at 11,251, having been down more than 2% in early trading. All three benchmarks are on track to close out the week in negative territory second quarter earnings season kicked off with major banks JP Morgan Chase and Morgan Stanley both reporting a bigger decline in earnings than forecast. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warned that the economy could take a hit from surging inflation, geopolitical tensions and dwindling consumer confidence sometime down the road. Shares of JP Morgan fell nearly 3.5%, hitting a fresh 52-week low after suspending its share buyback program. Morgan Stanley was down 0.4%. In Europe, the regional stock 600 index closed 1.5% lower, and in the UK, the FTSE 100 slid 1.6%. In Italy, Milan's FTSE MIB stock index tumbled 3.4% after Prime Minister Mario Draghi resigned. He's tendered his resignation after populist coalition partner Five Star withdrew its support in a confidence vote and refused to back the government's €23 billion package of economic aid for families and businesses, saying Mr Draghi was not doing enough to tackle the cost of living crisis. Hong Kong stocks ended Thursday lower. Despite a small bounce in tech firms, the Hang Seng Index fell 47 points, or 0.2%, to 20,751. The Tech Index jumped 0.9%, The Shanghai Composite fell 0.1% to 3,282. Investors have been selling the shares of Chinese property developers as their dollar bonds continue to slump amid a worsening funding crisis that has spread to some of the largest real estate firms. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index has lost almost 30% over the past two weeks as market concerns about the sector's financial health deepens. Mainland Chinese media reported this week that buyers in at least 100 real estate projects in more than 50 cities are threatening to stop servicing their mortgages on homes abandoned by developers. Longfall Group tumbled almost 5% Thursday and Country Gardens sank 1.4%, taking its decline over the past two weeks to more than 25%. And the CSI 300 Banks Index fell 2.2% after being down as much as 3.3% earlier in the day. It was a volatile day in the commodities markets. Brent crude oil was down over 5% at one stage on fears of an economic slowdown, but it recovered to settle almost unchanged at $99.71 a barrel. Gold is 1.5% lower at $1,710 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield is up four basis points to 2.96%, and the inversion between the two-year and the 10-year rates, which is a popular sign of a looming recession, remains at its widest gap since 2000 and the strengthening dollar pushed down most major currencies. The US dollar index climbed 0.6% to its highest level since June th- 2002. The Japanese yen fell 1.2% to a 24-year low of 138.94. The euro remains just a whisker above parity with the US dollar at $1 and a quarter of a cent. Sterling is half a percent weaker at $1.18 and a quarter cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and 29 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.76 in offshore markets. Bitcoin is up 3% at $20,500. Let's take a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets right now. The SX200 in Australia tumbling one and a quarter percent. The Nikkei 225 is up about two thirds of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. Also looks like a weak opening for the Hang Seng. It's going to fall about 200 points at the open according to futures markets. Let's welcome our guests, our regular Friday morning commentator, still somewhere in Europe, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Andrew Ferris. Morning, Andrew.
3: Good morning, and specifically in London. Back to Hong Kong on the 24th
2: of July. Yay, we welcome you back. And always happy to have on the show Martin Henneker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. He's over in our Queensway studio. Morning, Martin.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me back. A pleasure as
2: always. You're welcome. Let's start with this uh, news about uh, the stresses increasing in the Chinese property market. Investors have been selling, as you heard earlier, the shares and bonds of Chinese property uh, developers um the panic seems to have spread to investment grade builders chinese media reporting that buyers in at least 100 real estate projects in more than 50 cities are threatening to stop servicing their mortgages on homes abandoned by uh, developers and on thursday chinese authorities held emergency meetings with banks after growing alarmed by the increasing number of home buyers across the country that are refusing to pay their mortgages um andrew how serious a problem is this do you think
3: uh, looking through it because th- there were there were let's say two intermixed issues here one is the straightforward um, overstretched stroke uh, over-borrowed uh, property sector and the other is the association of either small uh, development companies and small banks that also combine this with wealth projects mm. products and this is this is this is the awkward part in other words I would like to have a huge microscope and put on the side all the factors that are related to wealth management products that are related directly or indirectly with the property sector and the property sector playing vanilla on itself. Mm. Uh, Vancouver, for example, has been having a hard time and that is apparently it's much more a straight issue of of, of property. The final football, uh, um sort of, Oh, okay. let's say, minor point raised here, is this uh, two months ago that People's Bank of China started becoming much more benign towards uh, property funding than unless I was completely misunderstood and misread that. So I thought, is that a strange contradiction here in terms? But you have the uh, mini, in inverted commas, mini-riots concerning people refusing to pay and uh, banks getting into problems. I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a wishy-washy answer, precisely because I find that the image and the picture is wishy-washy in terms of the direct cause and effect.
2: So this seems to be coming, this refusal to pay mortgages. Um, It really stems, doesn't it, from the widespread practice on the mainland of actually selling homes um, before they're built, so that people have lost confidence that these projects are going to be completed because uh, developers have basically run out of cash. So that seems to be what's leading to this. Is that right?
3: It, it appears to be very much the case. If I remember well, Hong Kong has stopped the practice some time ago. In mm. other words, uh, you cannot mortgage a property that has not been certified for occupation, if I remember well. So at least, as far as Hong Kong is concerned, and we're not discussing that yet. Okay, this, this is something which is not on. But
2: mm. I might be wrong. Martin, what's your take on this? Well,
4: you know, I always like to narrow really down themes to what it means for uh, investors because that's sort of what we do. And so typically when questions like this comes up, you know, the first implication of what people think about what could it mean to the equity market? Are we going to see another drop back or what's going to happen? But personally, on this specific issue in relation to the equity market, I'm not... I'm, you know, all out worried of another, you know, banking melt on risk or anything of this sort. Actually, if you look at the non-performing loan ratio of Chinese banks now, it's 1.79 percent at the moment. In Europe, for comparison purposes, it's 1.95 percent. And you could also argue that actually there are some things in terms of their economic prospects, in terms of inflation, producer prices, far, uh, uh, far away. That risk there are you know at, at much more of a breaking point but it's just much less talked about you know i, I raised mm-hmm. italy before etc etc but you know when you look at how much these kind of loans you know bank of communications actually um published some of these figures yesterday they said uh, when you look at the balance of overdue mortgage loans linked to housing projects that are at risk of delayed delivery that was 0.0067 percent mm-hmm. of the book of the domestic housing loans so um you know it's always good to be cautious and diversified globally across different asset classes etc 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 but i think given uh, generally, where equity valuations in China are, which is one of the lowest in the mm-hmm. world, particularly in Hong Kong. Actually, when you look at dual listed shares, they trade at another thirty one percent average discount to their to the counterparts on the mainland. You know, taking this into account, versus the risk as part of a diversified portfolio, I think there's still a case mm-hmm. to be made to hold uh, Chinese mm-hmm. stocks very much. So
2: we had a lot of banks, didn't we? I think there were six or seven yesterday, came out and said that um, you know this was going to be a small portion of their non-performing loans. Although I suppose the worry is that um, this will almost certainly worsen because Chinese developers have only delivered um, about 60% of the homes they've pre-sold. So you can assume that presumably this, this, this crisis is going to worsen.
4: There's always such risk, of course, but it seems that the government is very, very keen Um, to be all out addressing any issues and rolling out stimulus as needed. Mm. So you have to see it in the wider context of the whole sector, of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you covered before briefly that there's some generally quite encouraging news coming out on on June numbers uh, on the Chinese economy, like the credit numbers was actually very, very um, strong. Mm. You have the trade number in June up 14.3%, very strong experts, and then the massive infrastructure um, program and financial resource committed, 1.1 1.1 trillion US dollar committed to um, increase this one. So I think overall, it doesn't really look too
2: bad. Andrew, I suppose the bigger worry is that um, you, you get a widespread loss of confidence in real estate, that's spreading into the financial system and and that puts a a strain on China's economy and and its financial system because it's basically got something like I think 46 trillion yuan Uh, that's about 6.8 trillion US dollars um, of outstanding mortgages um, and about 13 trillion yuan of loans to the country's property uh, developers. The the risk is that this sort of like you get a contagion effect is it something that you're concerned about?
0: Well.
3: Not hugely, for uh, three reasons. One, which is uh, very long-term, very structural, and almost almost irrelevant, and that is that the top 50% of the Chinese banking system belongs to the government, and mm. governments don't go bankrupt, full stop. So, in other words, you always have the capacity of China to fund its way out of a severe banking crisis. Because if I remember well, the... Fiscal deficit of China never exceeded seven percent, and that was really at the top of the crisis. Which means, compared to what, for example, the United States went up nearly double that. The Chinese government can, if necessary, borrow to fund its way out. And the second point is of course the famous foreign exchange reserves, which is actually uh, Peter. It's basically wrong to bring them in as a source of funding, but it is fun. Okay, you can say you can always rely on those. This is this is effectively technically nonsense, but uh, potentially uh, with a certain accounting twists could be used. So in other words, a big economy like the Chinese economy, which is a net lender overseas, is a net creditor overseas, okay, it is theoretically it is impossible to go bankrupt, even Mm -hmm. if it has a major domestic financial crisis. Uh, The second point is, is that some of the the, say, expectational indexes, and that is the PMI indexes, the Kaixin, and the, uh, uh, I forgot the, the exact uh, initials, the state and the private run ones, they are still hovering around the 50. Now, these are manufacturing uh, indexes in general, but some of the more broad and purely business uh, uh, expectations do not point to a steep decline. Mm-hmm. So that leaves me <clears throat> clear in my throat, uh, less less unhappy.
2: Okay. Um, Martin, you mentioned the economy. We've got uh, important data coming out this morning. Second quarter GDP. Um, a lot of people expecting a contraction quarter on quarter. Um, year on year growth is expected to slow, according to the median forecast of economists, to 1.2% uh, from 4.8% in the, in the first quarter. Do you think that we've reached the nadir? Is this going to be the low point uh, for this year?
4: Well, I don't have a specific prediction to give you in terms of the year and number of GDP or this quarter, what exactly it's going to be. But, um, you know, when I look at uh, a middle pass of, of different types of predictions that come out from various institutions, we might be looking at something around 3.5%. They're so being relatively cautious, I think, mm-hmm. uh, uh, given given what we saw in June. But I think, you know, what's, what's more important here um, in terms of this number – It's not just to see that in isolation, um, you know, in terms of its weakening. I mean, firstly, um, it's still a massive number in absolute terms, just given that China has grown so much that many people aren't even aware of that. In PPP, uh, parity power terms, China is by far the largest economy. So even 3.5% growth, which sounds like really low, is larger than the entire economy of Thailand, for example. Hmm. Second point, you have to see it. Um, relative to global GDP and also equity valuations, equity valuations don't always correlate with GDP growth. And again, uh, you know, historically speaking, they're quite low. Then when you compare it with the U.S., um, it's it seems that there's a high chance to actually be in a recession. Uh, when you look at the first two quarters, which is a definition of recession with minus 1.6%, quarter one minus 1.2%, now Atlanta Fed GDP projection for quarter two, and at the same time you have actually got higher inflation in the US, and then in the Eurozone even even more extreme, still negative real interest rates, uh, sorry, still negative interest rates um, for now, and then the producer prices uh, running at 36% um, um, pace, so those stagglages Stagflationary risk arguably seem to be relatively larger actually in some of the um, some of the other economies there. And I'm not 100% confident that the central banks will be able to easily address it as people might think that they can just um, take down inflation whenever they want. But the problem mm-hmm. is that um unlike in the 1980s where sovereign debt in lo- in those kind of countries were, was generally quite low including in the u.s and they could just hike rates to 15 percent 20 percent to get on top of it now you know we, we aren't even talking any of those kind of levels it wouldn't be possible given where uh, gdp weakness is given where debt levels are and for the u.s also i think given where japan and europe is stuck so obviously um, between preventing a debt crisis and not, not raising rates too much, and having inflation, you know, ha- having, having let uh, go of, of inflation control to some extent, arguably. And that will put pressure on the US to stay competitive in international markets and again limit the room for maneuver to, to continue hiking forever. So I think that's quite um, tricky. And in, in the big picture of things, again, I think um, China uh, doesn't look too bad and deserves
2: its place as part of global portfolio. Andrew, we saw from that trade data um, that, that the uh, that trade is motoring, isn't it? Export still a big part of uh, of China's economy. But if the global economy falls into recession, uh, what's going to happen to China's economy?
3: Well, I, I will, I will, I will pick a little bit of a, of, of an issue as far as uh, the broad talking of recession is concerned. Unfortunately, the agreed uh, term of recession is uh, two quarters, quarter on quarter growth. Uh, negative, back-to-back, and to throw it in also annualized, which I absolutely dislike and distrust these because I think they're pretty meaningless. I'm not saying they don't indicate anything, but I'm not quite sure. Last time China grew negatively on a year-to-year basis was back in the first quarter of year 20, okay, and uh, for this to happen again, uh, things in the real industrial sector, industrial output uh uh, export growth okay just just isn't there so i just cannot see a year on year negative number coming up okay point number one point number two is is yes the export is doing the export sector is doing very well and hence the trade balance of china is increasing including the surplus the bilateral trade uh, surplus with the United States is increasing. But unfortunately, it is doing that on the basis that exports are doing okay, but inputs have absolutely tanked. And that is always a bad sign because China inputs primarily not so much to eat, but to produce. In other words, mm-hmm. the, the, the ratio of inputs to exports is very, very high indeed. So if inputs are slowing down, uh, that's not a very good sign, despite okay. the fact that adds to the trade surplus.
2: Okay. Great. Well, thank you. Have a good weekend. You heard there Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Martin Henneker, who's Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio
1: 3.
2: Time's Time for our regular Friday view from India with Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. Morning, Toby.
1: Hey, good morning,
2: Peter. Now, when we spoke last Friday, we were discussing whether the Fed would raise interest rates by 50 basis points or maybe be more aggressive with a 75 basis point rate rise. Just one week later, 100 basis points is, is on the table. What, what a big change. What, what's your assessment of what's going on?
1: Well, I think probably a little bit of press around some of the other moves like Bank of Canada going 1%, you know, half percent Bank of New Zealand. So rate rises are now sort of baked in at uh, minimum half a percent. And then you've got the CPI of uh, plus 9% sort of higher since 1981. That grabs the headlines. Uh, I suspect they'll probably stick to the 75, but uh, there is an outside chance that uh, they might go 100. But uh, certainly now I think you could lock in the 75 for the Fed uh,
2: Mm -hmm. in the coming weeks. I mean, if we do get a 100 basis points in a couple of weeks' time, it's um, the sort of move we haven't seen, that markets haven't seen in decades. So are, are they going to be prepared for this?
1: Well, it was interesting to see the reaction to uh, the CPI number in itself. Uh, clearly, you saw the yield curve flatten quite dramatically. So two years' uh, uh, yield jumped sharply versus uh, 10 years. So that's actually an interesting you know, scenario in terms of pricing in recession, the markets reacted to that extent on the yield curve, equity markets are a little bit more sanguine, but, uh, you know, still feeling the pressure. I think the reason equities didn't go too aggressively is they've already had a fairly large move this year. So at this stage, a lot of that money uh, is now positioned out of the equity market, at least some of the, sh- the hotter money, and now people are sort of trying to assess the next move on the Fed. So it's possible that they'll have another leg down on equities if they go 100, uh, but the markets seem to be reasonably uh, ready for the higher CPI number.
2: It has substantial implications, doesn't it, for markets and also for, I suppose, uh, specific sectors because I think the main takeaway from the data this week isn't so much inflation now. It seems to be that a near-term recession um, has become much more likely, and that's what markets uh, seem to be pricing in now. So presumably, from an investor's perspective, you now have to be thinking about how to position your portfolio uh, for a recession.
1: Well, I think two things have really triggered that. If you, you know, and as I mentioned, the yield curve, you saw the two-year, ten-year spread um, move quite significantly. So that's a reflection. Two things: one, that uh, higher interest rates than expected at the short end, and also the impact of growth, uh, therefore, you know, uh, uh, limiting the rise in ten-year uh, bond yields. At the same time, you've seen commodity prices drop quite sharply in July, some seven percent uh, alone in July across most of the commodity complex, still up seventeen percent for the year, though at least the last twelve months. But um, there's the other thing that reflects that people are now pricing in lower demand and hence lower commodity prices. So a couple of factors indeed are starting to reflect in markets uh, that uh, the recession is, uh, is definitely going to happen. Mm,
2: and this is potentially leading to a currency crisis as well, isn't it, in certain countries? We've got the euro just a whisker away from now from parity with the dollar. We've got the yen um, at a 24-year low. This is also presumably going to cause some problems as well. I
1: would say yeah. I think it's a, a most interesting topic. Uh, dollars, you know, a dollar index sort of 108 plus, um, you know, it's extraordinary levels. And then, as you mentioned, euro and yen, uh, are the two largest currencies outside the US, uh, if you take out uh, CMY. and uh, so yeah, I, I think it's an interesting topic to see this type of dislocation that could occur um, in the emerging market spaces. That's where you'll feel it. Uh, and uh, right now. Uh, on the emerging market space, it hasn't necessarily seen a huge dislocation. In India, for where I sit, um, the Reserve Bank are throttling the, uh, the depreciation of INR reasonably well, uh, but it's already at record lows. So um, we look for the, the velocity, as we always talk about, Pete, a velocity in markets. And uh, FX markets, I think, are really interesting right now, particularly on Euro.
2: And what about inflation in India? We had data earlier this week, didn't we? showed consumer price inflation at 7% uh, from uh, from a year earlier. Six straight month now that prices are above uh, the RBI's target, central bank's target of 2% to 6%. We're going to see more interest rate rises in India?
1: Yeah, the forecast is for another 50 basis points in August. Uh, that'll be on top of the 90 basis points that's already been delivered so far. There was a slight improvement in CPI due to base effect. Um, and one thing that may give some comfort to RBI is the moving commodity prices, you know, whether it's oil, whether it's across the, uh, some of the areas where India imports a lot of inflation. Maybe the heat's coming out a little bit. So I would say 50 basis points is baked in, but um, the moving commodity prices over the last month could give RBI a little more comfort, uh, that uh, maybe they're seeing a peak in, uh, in some of the, the imported inflation that's coming into India.
2: Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's have another look at the markets this morning. In Australia, stocks slipping further into the red. The ASX 200 now down 1.5%. Japanese stocks uh, seem to be losing their gains from earlier this morning. The Nikkei 225 has gone flat. The Cosby in South Korea is down 0.8%. Futures markets uh, on the Hang Seng slipping further, indicating that the Hang Seng index is going to open about 240 points lower later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening today and this week. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning. Coming up after the news, back chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods and a few showers. Maximum temperature uh, going to be around 32 degrees. High temperatures are going to persist over the weekend and into next week. It's 29 degrees right now, 82% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31, here's Andrew Swarovski with the half-hour news.
0: Thank you, Peter. COVID cases have hit their highest daily level since early April, with Hong Kong reporting 3,674 infections yesterday, 257 of them imported. Five more patients have died. Meanwhile, authorities now say that anyone who tests positive while attempting to cross into the mainland will go straight to a local quarantine facility. It follows reports of people who test positive at Shenzhen Bay being told to leave the area on their own. Dr. Chuan Chu Kwan of the Center for Health Protection said people had to test negative before setting off for Shenzhen Bay, so most of the border cases were probably re-positives.
2: Of course, there may be one or two cases. A few uh, proportion of cases, they may have a recent infection detected there. So to improve and to strengthen the management of these cases will require all departing passengers to be sent to the community isolation facilities for those who have a positive uh, quick PCR.
0: An engineering professor says stricter penalties may ensure proper usage of electronic wristbands for COVID patients. From today, people who report positive results and who quarantine at home will have to wear an electronic bracelet to ensure they don't go out. William Wong from the Faculty of Engineering at the Chinese University was involved in distributing similar wristbands used two years ago for inbound travelers. He told RTHK that some elderly people or those with inadequate Wi-Fi at home experience difficulties using the devices. He also said the system relied on trust.
3: The operation depends a lot on trust. Some of these people are not really trustworthy. They are not actually following the requirements and then they walk out and that was causing the trouble. I think what they try to do now is to make it stricter. If you were caught, then you probably get heavily fines.
1: And then some of the people, they do not know how to operate the thing. So we have to help them to start the device. So I think one of the problems is usability because there are many elderly people
3: around. There are also people in the households where they do not have enough
1: Wi-Fi facilities around.
0: The Speaker of the Sri Lankan Parliament says he's finally received President Gotabaya Rajapaksa's resignation letter following days of huge anti-government protests. But a spokesman said it needed to be verified, and its legality checked as the letter was sent by email. Mr. Rajapaksa fled Sri Lanka on Wednesday after protesters began taking over government buildings in the capital, Colombo. He's now in Singapore. Sri Lanka's central bank governor, Nandala Wirasinghe, told the BBC that stability was vital.
3: My request for all these parties to come together and have a stable administration and agree on a short-term program and then obviously after some time once economy is stable, any kind of election and in my view people who have been elected to the parliament uh,
0: have the responsibility to establish a stable administration sooner the better. The news from RTHK.
2: Welcome to Back Chat with me, Andrew Work, and Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice.